We can't see that further horizon right now. It's like driving your car at nighttime. You can't see beyond your headlights. But you can cross the whole country that way. I think if we're really going to make it out of this moment, not just where each of us individually recovers, but if we recover as a society and we build a new future, that's really going to require radical love. The good news about the bad news that we've had for so long is that we are doing things very differently. Just a few snippets from a series here on NPR News called The Future of Us. Good morning, a Monday morning. I'm Tom Cran filling in for Angela Davis today, and I want to share some of those conversations with you. Each Monday on All Things Considered, we are exploring how a pandemic, a police murder, and a city on fire have changed us and our path forward. We asked a pastor, a theater director, a philanthropist, and more to look forward, reflect on how these past three years have shifted what they do and where they're going. We're going to hear some of those voices later in the show. But first, we're going to focus on the future of education. To start, I'm joined by NPR News education reporter Elizabeth Shockman this morning. Good morning, Elizabeth. Morning, Tom. In a moment, we're going to hear the latest Future of Us conversation, this one with 2020 Minnesota Teacher of the Year, Korsha Hassan. Since earning that honor, she's left the classroom in an effort to improve the system from a different angle. So as you listen to Korsha and we hear more about that, I want you to think and reflect. Maybe you're a teacher, a teacher who's experienced some of the same things that uh, Korsha Hassan is talking about. What's your take on where education is headed? Is it different from hers as you listen? And how did the pandemic and the murder of George Floyd change how you think about and do your work in the classroom? And maybe you're of a, a parent of school-aged children. So many have had their lives changed in a different way. How has all this changed your thinking on life and parenting? So the number to call with your thoughts, 651-227-6000. Again, 651-227-6000. And now our interview with Korsha Hassan. When the pandemic hit, she was teaching fifth grade in Burnsville, and the community at large was praising its teachers alongside nurses and other essential workers. Well, later that year, she'd become the 2020 Teacher of the Year, the state's first Somali teacher to earn that honor. And then... A surprise to many. She left the classroom, and now Hassan is the executive director of Thrive Ed. The nonprofit is working with the Hopkins School District to model the kind of learning environment that, if better supported, might have kept Hassan in her classroom. Thrive Ed became my refuge. It became my safe space um, when I really needed some way to kind of escape my reality of dealing with emergency distance learning and then the height of COVID. Um, and then on top of that, the murder of George Floyd. It was beautiful to be a part of an organization that saw the bigger picture, um, that was aware of the problem, right? The um, issue of, you know, the traditional model of like the one size fits all approach um, and how that really fails, not just students, but educators and school leaders. How did you see your role when you first began teaching? And then how did that shift in the year leading up to your uh, decision to leave the classroom? 
I was very robotic. I um, followed standards to a T and I taught to the test. Um, and all I thought was if my students are able to graduate, they're able to find jobs and then they'll be able to uh, determine, you know, what their you know path of success will be. And then about a couple years in, I realized that that model of teaching was not only archaic, but it was also rooted in white supremacy. And it was not meeting the needs of many of my learners who were black and brown students. And so I shifted um, to really constructing and dreaming of a better world with my students um, and letting them lead alongside of me. Um, and I think that that really not only helped my classroom community thrive amongst, you know, very different challenges throughout the years, but also it made me realize that um, this is what teaching and this is what learning should look like, um, that students should be entitled to sustainable and joy-filled education experiences. And they should be a part of a community that um, acknowledges them as individuals and their progress should be personalized um, and individualized. And we should really be like breaking the mold of what has really become the industrialization of education. I think 2020, when COVID struck, was a perfect opportunity to innovate um, and to analyze the ways in which we teach. And then, you know, it kind of fell to the wayside. We kind of got back to what the normal was, um, business as usual. Was there any practice or policy or even innovation during the pandemic uh, that you think uh, should remain or we should reconsider? Um, right away as the pandemic began, there was an increase or an uptick in parent communication. Um, I loved the way that we were just com constantly in communication um, and also really centering um, just basic human needs first. Um, so providing free school lunches, snacks, um, taking care of the community and being really mindful of how not to just um, exist and be in a very chaotic space, but also just to kind of extend a hand um, and be there for those that are in need. Um, and so probably to me, what stood out the most was how we just really took um, control and were just incredibly aware of the needs of our students and their parents um, and our community. Uh, and that had never been centered before. Um, it was always kind of the... Um, what was put on the back burner. Uh, and I think COVID just illuminated for many educators how students were struggling at home. It kind of gave us a glimpse of their um, living room and what they were really dealing with. I want to get to a couple of issues that came up during the last couple of years. Specifically, how did the, the murder of George Floyd and the aftermath change how teachers approach their job and and moving forward what remains of that that will continue to influence the profession i think there was this need to um really focus on the word equity um and you know i um saw a lot of schools share their dei mission statements um share a lot of visioning in terms of how um, to build more, you know, equitable school spaces for students. And to me, you know, a, a great example of how to really live out um, equity is to listen to students, have them actually have power and stake in not only their education experience, but also in their school experience overall. Um, it's not just, you know, having a student council 
filled with students that are, you know, your typical compliance students, but rather inviting all students to give feedback and inviting students to be a part of changing policy that is racist or ableist or homophobic. And I find those um, examples to be rare. They're happening, but they're happening in silos. And so if we want to really um, eradicate the achievement gap, if we want to make sure that school experiences are equitable for all, um, we're going to have to do a little bit more than, you know, here and there with equity. Um, equity requires success and it requires access. It requires students to feel like and know, not necessarily feel, but actually know that they have stake in their learning. You've used this word co-designing a couple of times and you've said uh, you learn to let your students lead alongside you. So tell us more about how you teach that to more teachers I believe that um, co-design looks like equity um, in the classroom, outside of the classroom. It's not only joy-filled, but it's also a space where student voice um, is used and is honored. And I think that, you know, a co-designed experience for not only teachers and students, but also administrators would lead to um, an education experience that's revolutionary, that's radical, um, and that is also personalized. Um, and I think what we're really missing um, and what has, you know, caused me to leave the classroom is that we don't really have relationship based communities outside of certain classrooms. Um, I think that that um, aspect could also really change school culture. Um, it could really create more inclusive and authentic learning spaces as well. So where do you see the future of education heading as we come out of these last few years? Give us an assessment, your assessment. My hope and dream is that we land in a better position than we are right now um, and really allow for more collaboration um, and more spaces for students and um, parents and caregivers and community members to be stakeholders. Um, and instead of having legislators or administrators decide what education looks like, um, I want our community to decide what education looks like. And I think that if we move towards that direction um, and have more of a practice of youth-led spaces, um, not just for education, but really in all sectors, I think we'll have a better world. That was 2020 Minnesota Teacher of the Year and Thrive Ed Executive Director Korsha Hassan talking about education for our Future of Us series. We are sharing some of the conversations we've had on All Things Considered this morning. I'm Tom Cran in for Angela Davis, and we're going to air some more conversations from the series in the second half of the hour. I'm glad you've joined me here at 9.19 in the morning on a Monday here on NPR News. I want to bring in NPR News education reporter Elizabeth Shockman, who's been listening along with us, and invite you as well to join the conversation at 651-227-6000. Again, 651-227-6000. What were your impressions of what uh, Korsha Hassan was talking about? But first, Elizabeth Shockman, who covers education, education for us. And Elizabeth, a lot there to unpack. What were you thinking during that piece? 
Well, Korsha is a, a powerful voice in education. She's not afraid to call things what they are. Um, you can hear a lot in there. She deeply cares about her students and felt really unsupported in her job over the mm-hmm. last couple of years yeah. as a teacher. Of course, that's really concerning, and Korsha certainly is not the only one. Um, so many teachers that I've spoken to describe burnout, describe feeling discouraged, describe feeling overwhelmed, um, wanting to help their students, but feeling not supported. Um, and I think there's something there that that she touched on, of course, um, those working for equity also are experiencing really difficult headwinds. And too often, as Korsha described, um, performative support um, or performative anti-racism um, instead of the, the changes they really are asking for and want to see for themselves and their students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, as I heard that, though, I thought there must be uh, teachers and educators in the classroom working on these same issues who maybe have a different perspective, maybe seeing some some progress. So uh, if you're an educator, how have the past three years changed the way you think about your work? Uh, if you're a parent of school-aged children, boy, your life has changed. How have these tumultuous years changed your thinking on parenting and education? If you're a student, what are your hopes for the future of education? What has your experience been like, and how do we get there? Again, 651-227-6000. Join the conversation with us. We're talking with Elizabeth Schachman. And uh, are you seeing some of the things, Elizabeth, that uh, Korsha talked about, parent engagement, taking care of basic needs, the uh, um, co-learning in pockets throughout the state? Where is it actually happening? One thing I picked up on that Korcha talked about is um, this idea of co-designing and her emphasis yeah. and um, passion for really listening to students and working with students to uh, make a space where they all thrive. Um, that's something, you know, a lot of the last couple of years have been focused on um, talking about. It's been really hard, right? So talking to students, yeah. talking to teachers and educators, t- talking to parents about how hard things have been. Um, and But one of the cool things I've seen out of that is, you know, a little bit of what Korsha talked on is, you know, when things kind of went bottom up, um, when things got really difficult, um, that caused a lot of people to ask a lot of questions about what's happening in the classroom. Why does it have to be this way? A lot of the reporting I've done over um, the last nine to 12 months has been um, really focusing on students and their experiences and the questions that they're asking about why Why is it this way in the classroom? And could it be this way? And, and sort of the ways that they're imagining um, things for themselves and the teachers who are um, helping them and encouraging them and working with them to um, think about ways to do uh, school better. Now, what about the issue, Elizabeth, as you've uh, um, done reporting on, on retention, especially for teachers of color. I know there was some controversy in Minneapolis with uh, uh, contract language and all of that with that. But but how, in general, I know it's a big question, how are districts dealing with that? So um, teacher recruitment and retention is uh, something many Minnesota districts are concerned about. Staffing shortages staffing shortages have been a serious issue through the pandemic, um, whether through illness, um, retirements, um, going back to to teacher burnout. Um, And then, of course, um, we could talk specifically about teachers of color and um, the issue of getting enough teachers of color in the classroom. Um, As Mm -hmm. we know, the current statistics are pretty dire. Um, About 95% of Minnesota teachers are white, which is a pretty um, 
extreme contrast to the almost 40% of students who are people of color. So um, there are a lot of efforts um, to try to change that. So state-level programs, um, trying to recruit and retain teachers of color, grow your own programs, different districts um, with varying levels of uh, success and and failure. But that is something people um, are focused on and want to change. Um, It's essential. There is a lot of research out there to show how important teachers of color are in the classroom, especially for students of color. The number to call this morning if you want to join our conversation, 651-227-6000, 651-227-6000, as we talk about the future of us and we listen to uh, some of the conversations from our series on All Things Considered. After the years we've been through the future of us, but we also now are talking specifically about the future of education. Elizabeth Schachman, our education reporter here at NPR News with me, and uh, we have a call. We're going to go to uh, Tom in Mounds here on NPR News this morning with a question actually uh, for Elizabeth. Hi, Tom. Go ahead. Hi, Elizabeth. Um, It used to be that the schools and the teachers would put together programs. They would test it. They would push it up to the school board. Then the school board would approve it and push it out to everybody. I saw a shift where the school boards are basically dictating what gets taught and now everybody gets a program. Which one works better, and what should we do about it if we have the wrong one? All right, Elizabeth, some, uh, can you shed some light on that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. So I think the caller is talking about, um, if, I'm, if I'm remembering, um, different programming in school and, and how to get mm-hmm. that from an idea stage to out in, in classrooms. And yeah. Um, there's varying um, ways that that happens. Um, it's a little hard to know based on um, on the question, kind of what what exactly he's talking about. But yeah, that's often the board is involved in getting um, new programs in schools. It sort of depends on the funding and so on. Sometimes um, a teacher has an idea. Sometimes it's a student. Um, if we're talking about um, sort of student involvement in schools, Korsha as well touched on some of the different um, ways that students are involved. Often you'll see a student representative on a board um, who will give reports and updates um, and sometimes kind of interface with students as well um, and kind of interject um, or or have their moment at a school board meeting to um, kind of weigh in on different decisions. Um, and that's not that's not always the case with every every decision, you know, um, yeah. during finance reports, um, you know, that's sort of the, the person in charge of finance at the district bringing something forward and and um, giving a report and then board members discussing it. So there's lots of different ways. And I think, you know, Korsha brought up a really interesting point about what, um, you know, what is the student involvement? Are we can we move beyond um that student council, a student council member on the board um, or student representative on the on the board is great, um, but can we do more to to make sure that um, we're listening to students, we're involving them in decision making, and we're not just listening to, um, as she put it, uh, sometimes it's you know a compliant voice, someone uh, a single representative, but the voices that are hard to hear from students. Students speak in lots of different ways, including um, expressing their frustration in many different ways, their disapproval, um, asking for help in many different ways. So um, there's, you know, I think she pointed out another thing as well, which is listening to all these voices and finding new ways of of incorporating um, student input. 
Another call here from Anthony in Minneapolis, uh, who's addressing an issue that has become a, a national political issue. And Anthony, you're on NPR News. Go ahead. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. Um, my uh, response to that question is I'm a child of the 70s and 80s, and I cannot imagine back in my day when you would have parents essentially attempting to dictate curriculum. It was the trained professionals who were teachers who are certified and licensed to instruct me as a student. And now there's this massive push, and I would say um, mostly from the right, to have parents providing input into their curriculum when they're not trained professionals. So you could have a chef or a plumber or a mail carrier dictating what curriculum should and should not be. And I Mm. find that to be quite disturbing. Um, Is this national trend the way of the future? Or is there or have you seen more pushback um, in keeping parents' noses out of the teacher's business, so to speak? Thank you. All right, Anthony. Thanks. Uh, Elizabeth, here in Minnesota, um, again, it's hard to generalize, but we've seen this issue. And, and how has it played out here? I think that, so the way Anthony put that is is really interesting. I think it's important to focus on the framing of the question here. So <clears throat> parent input is hugely important. Parents, um, uh, and it's not new for parents to be involved. Um, obviously, during the pandemic, we saw unprecedented, um, sometimes um, as a parent myself, um, overwhelming yeah. parent involvement um, as, you know, kind of kindergarten on Zoom while trying to work full time um, was a level of parent involvement in classrooms that <laughs> I didn't necessarily want. Um, and so there's um, there's certainly over the last couple of years, there has been parent involvement and there's really always, um, the, you know, parent um teacher organizations, um, parents speaking at school boards, parents running for school board, um, parents volunteering in their classrooms, um, raising money for schools. Parents have long been involved and, of course, helping students at home, um, coaching Little League, all sorts of things. Parents um, have long been involved, and and it's great um, parents being involved. It's necessary. Um, But we have seen over um, the last couple of years a political movement, a excuse me, a political movement that um, we've seen a lot of parents um, pushing back. So there has, of course, been real um, concern about, you know, schools closing and and parents worrying about that, worrying about masking. Um, But then we've also seen um, politicians and activists um, kind of co-opting some of that concern, some of um, that parent involvement, um, spreading disinformation about terms like critical race theory, social emotional learning, um, co-opting the term woke. Um, So some of those actions and pushbacks have had a real life measurable effect. Um, And that might be a little bit of what Anthony is getting at. Some of the um, really intense school board debates that we've seen, um, parents, uh, the Minnesota Parents Alliance that we saw started this year, which um, was a collection of parents that, you know, started being concerned about um, the way things were happening with masking and so on in, in school districts. And then really, um, you know, seeing conservative activists, politicians, um, and so on, stepping in and co-opting some of those movements um, to run for school boards, to organize, to train, to fund, um, and get those parents organized. And um, a lot of the language that they were using is talking about, you know, parents taking control, parents getting involved, parents um, sending form letters about, um, curriculum and so on. Um, so those actions and pushback 
Um, we've seen them on a national level. We've seen them in Minnesota. They've had a real-life measurable effect, um, anti-CRT laws, lawsuits, book bans, and so on. Um, yeah. So it, it sort of depends on how you frame that in terms of parent involvement, I think. So, Elizabeth, I want to touch on one more thing that uh, Korsha said as we look uh, again our, our uh, theme this morning, the future of us, so the future here of education. Uh, she said the districts are are it's sort of inertia. They want to get back to normal before the pandemic. Um, but things have changed. How do you see it? Uh, are districts wanting to get back to normal or are things permanently changed? I think it depends on what exactly we're talking about in terms of change. Um, a lot has happened um, during the pandemic, of course. Um, staff, Korsha is an example. Not all the staff who were here before the pandemic are still here now. Um, kids have graduated. Um, you know, of course, we spent a lot of time talking over the last um, couple of years about um, the difficult things that have happened, um, student mental health issues, um, yeah. how difficult it's been to to teach in this environment and to absorb information, right? And we see that reflected in, in falling test scores on reading and math and science. Um, so I think that there is, you know... Um, of course, getting back in person, going back to that sort of normal, um, teachers are really excited about, um, and a lot of kids are really excited about as well. Um, and, you know, but coming back to that, um, a lot has happened. And so um, for teachers to try to work through that, to try to reintroduce, what is it, what does it mean to be a student, to sit at a desk, to, um, to give, uh, to interact with a teacher and a, and a, a fellow student in a classroom. Um, mm-hmm. So in, in that sense, right, um, getting back to normal um, has been a lot of work. Um, it, it, it's, um, it's been really hard, and um, there's been a real mm-hmm. yearning to do that. But I do think, we heard Korsha talking about this, mm-hmm. people are still asking questions about why are we doing this, and, and is this the best way to do things? We hear students doing that. We hear teachers like Korsha doing that. We do hear some administrators doing that and thinking, what can we learn from the pandemic and how can we change things? Elizabeth Shockman, our education reporter here at NPR News. I'm Tom Cran, in for Angela Davis this morning. And we're talking about our series on all things considered the future of us today, the future of education. It's where we started. We have time for one more quick call here before a news update. Uh, Joseph in Fargo, uh, go ahead. You're on NPR News. Okay, thank you for taking my call. Everything that people have said thus far is important and interesting, and the viewpoints are important and interesting. Nevertheless, I would hope that people would put more emphasis on a critical issue. In the teaching and learning of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, we are falling behind globally. So my question is, given the amazing diversity of student backgrounds and cultures, and the sheer fact of oppression of some of our students, how do we help them understand the importance of and then learn science, technology, engineering, mathematics? Thank you for taking my comment. Uh, Joseph, thank you. And uh, there we're talking about STEM and Elizabeth Shockman is the emphasis on STEM certainly that we heard a lot about uh, before the pandemic, uh, for the last decade or so at least. Uh, has that, uh, is that still at the forefront? Um, well, I think, yeah, he's pointing out, you know, how important that is. Um, so mm-hmm. many students uh, love STEM. There are a lot of STEM programs in schools. Um, and it's, of course, it's it was 
important before the pandemic. It's important now. Um, And of course, we did see just like with um, reading scores, we did see um, we did see some math scores um, and some of some science scores fall during the pandemic as well. Just like everything else, um, it was um, quite difficult to to teach, like I said, and to learn during the pandemic. And so um, there's hopefully, um, as with everything else, a renewed interest in in how are we going to make um, learning work for students? How are we going to make teaching something that um, teachers are excited to do, that it's it's a respected profession? And, um, and of course, science and math um, teachers, STEM, those working in the STEM profession as well. Elizabeth Schachman, our education reporter, thank you for fielding the questions and for adding your insight to that of uh, Korsha Hassan, who uh, started off our hour on the future of us focusing on education. I really appreciate it, Elizabeth. Thanks. Thanks, Tom. So I'm Tom Cran filling in for Angela Davis today on this Monday morning. You'll hear guest hosts all week uh, as Angela travels through South Africa with a group of NPR listeners. She's in Cape Town, and uh, I'll tell you a little more about that as we go through the week. But tomorrow at 9 here on the radio, Chief Meteorologist Paul Hutner will be here to celebrate the 10-year anniversary of climate cast can you believe it so if you have uh, climate science news and solutions uh you want to know how they've evolved since climate cast debuted 10 years ago tomorrow tune in a special looks back and looks forward to with an expert panel of guests paul hutner right here tomorrow morning at nine celebrating climate cast and while she's away you can follow angela on her trip she's all over social media tweeting updates at angela davis mpr keeping a blog on our website too at mprnews.org support comes from delta dental of minnesota foundation improving oral health while advancing social equities by expanding access to dental care and investing in the communities across Minnesota. DeltaDentalMN.org slash MPR. Well, we continue this hour, more conversations in our Future of Us series, looking at how a pandemic, a police murder, and a city on fire have changed us and our path forward. In the next half hour, you'll hear from Guthrie Artistic Director Joseph Hodge about the future of performing arts, and from McKnight Foundation President Tanya Allen about philanthropy. But first, the future of worship. As the pandemic tested Mayo Clinic staff in Rochester, so too did it test the 163-year-old church right next door. Like many houses of worship, Calvary Episcopal Church learned to make do on Zoom. But church rector Beth Royalty says that shift signaled something much deeper, deeper, that is, for an institution that's steeped in tradition. It wasn't just a technical change. It really was a theological change because I think some people just gave up. They just, you know, you know the term ghosted (laughs) Um, and that terminology is often used for, uh, you know, intimate relationships or dating relationships. You get ghosted by somebody. Well, it's become a word that we use in the church community as well. Um, And a kind of a dawning realization in that first year of COVID that communities had been, quote, ghosted by members who just sort of disappeared. And at the same time, the Pew Research people got busy and other researchers got busy and predicted that a third of congregations across the board of all flavors of faith, a third of the congregations were going to not come back. And at that time, that felt absolutely right to me. I would say that now, three years in, 
some of those people have come back, but still, a few weeks ago, I did what we call culling the roles. <laughs> I went through our directory, and I probably removed maybe 20% of the people that were in our directory, people that I just don't know where they are. They've disappeared. You know, some of them have moved. And these waves of change are continuing people reconsidering the place of church in their lives and their family lives, of learning other ways to, quote, do church that did not necessarily involve showing up on a Sunday morning. Those things were already happening. It just exacerbated. It got faster. Things happened faster because of the pandemic. So there's this sense that whether it's working from home or hybrid work or even the way we get our food or shopping, that the pandemic and this experience just accelerated change that was going to happen. And I know that you have done a lot of thinking about the way the church is changing in these big historic cycles. You talk about, I've heard you talk about 500-year cycles, right? Yes. And and I will give you a, a name of an author who did a lot of work on this and actually wrote a book about this. She's now passed away, but her name was Phyllis Tickle. Her thesis was that Every 500 years, the church has gone through a huge reformation. And, of course, we know historically we have a time in our period we call the Reformation. And her thesis was we are in the midst right now in our lifetime, pre-pandemic, she died before COVID-19 started, of a reformation. She called it a huge garage sale. It's like having a huge garage sale um, as far as what we talk about letting go of, not, not putting out for sale, to continue that metaphor, right? Um, and that's the sort of existential question that we continue to ask ourselves. And I would say at Calvary, there's been a freedom to understand that we can let go of the past. We have to let go of the past. And there are a lot of things in the past, Tom, that we needed to let go of. Do you see a future? Is there still a future, do you think, for gathering in person in a sanctuary uh, with a choir and people singing and reading and sitting side by side in pews? Absolutely, yes, I do believe that. Because I think to sit with each other and talk about important things and see each other, each other's eyes and faces and the new babies and the elders, to laugh together, to wonder together, to pray together in person is a basic human desire. That has not gone away. But they may come together in smaller places. I, I would put throw this into the mix, Tom. Churches like Calvary and other churches that are old, have gigantic buildings that have been largely empty for now two and a half years. Those buildings, I think, had become, for many congregations, perhaps mine included, more important than a lot of other things. So the, one of the bigger questions is, what do we do with a building that is full on and busy on a Sunday but not so much during the week, and it's old. We're the oldest church in Rochester. Our church was built in 1860. We were built, you know, right there at the beginning of the Civil War before the Mayo Clinic was put where it is. And it's beautiful, and we love it, but it's just like an old house. It's expensive to keep up, 
That is a huge question that the COVID-19 pandemic has asked us to really look at how much of our time, talent, resources, treasure is God calling us to put into this building versus putting into people and relationships and fellowship and work. And that is a hot, hot conversation going on in the church world right now. So it, it might look different, but the fact that people want to gather, it might be in a house church, which is an ancient way of worshiping, to storefronts, to parks. So how we do it might look different, but the fact that we want to do it isn't going to change. Is there a, a passage of Scripture or an idea that uh, you have either held on to through this and, and points the way to the future that you keep coming back to? The church, our church, Calvary Episcopal Church, does not belong to us. It belongs to God. And it's (laughs) ironically, it's really easy to forget that and become very human and get worried and and wonder about who's coming back and where are our people and what are we going to do? Yeah, try to control it. And it's, it's funny how when we remember who this church belongs to, that God does take care of of this place. And one of the scripture passages I continue always to go back to, funnily enough, is the first chapter of Genesis. Out of chaos, God creates. That was Beth Royalty talking about the future of worship. She is rector of Calvary Episcopal Church, just next door to Mayo Clinic in Rochester, the oldest church in Rochester. She spoke with us just before Christmas. And a couple of weeks earlier, Guthrie Theater Director Joseph Hodge sat down with us as his busiest season was just getting underway. Hodge told me that three years into the pandemic, holiday crowds still aren't what they used to be, and I asked him if he's worried. If we wanted to look at the 2,500-year arc of the Western drama, it has survived much worse things than even the terrible, terrible time we've all lived through over the past now nearly three years. So, you know, my worries and concerns are, of course, towards the near term. What's what, what are the ne- what's the next one year, three years, five years, ten years? But when it comes to theater itself. I have zero worries. I mean, no worries at all. I'm certain it will survive as it always has. And why? Well, as humans, we require narratives. We organize our lives by the stories that we tell to ourselves and the stories we tell to one another. We organize our lives this way. So much so, as, you know, as the saying goes, uh, we need stories so badly that when we go to sleep at night, our brain stays up telling stories to itself. In, in childhood, we want stories before going to bed. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's our way of understanding the world. It ignites our imagination. It builds empathy towards others. It does any number of remarkable things. It makes better citizens. Participating in the theater just does. And it's been proven so over time. Um, But I think at bottom, the reason theater will go nowhere is because I think the collective act of gathering together to listen to somebody else's story is a rare and beautiful and necessary thing. We curate the content 
of our lives so much these days because we can. We have the technology to, right? We follow the sports teams we love. We leave out of our mix the sports teams we're not interested in. We watch the channels or the stories around the news that corroborate with perhaps our own politics or worldview. The danger of it is it leaves out alternative voice, alternative perspectives, ways that test us and allow us to think more broadly. So the beauty of the theater very often is that it invites people in for a couple or a few hours into a narrative that is not our own. Let's say that despite best efforts and all the work that you don't get back to the before times, the pre-pandemic levels, in whatever way you measure it. It could be a hundred different ways. Uh, what did you learn from the experience that'll hold you there as you try to pivot to the, to the next version, if you will, of, of the Guthrie? Well, I used to say in the before times, the Guthrie, as, as the large arts institution that it is, with 18 months' notice, we can do anything. Anything anybody in the, the American theater can do, we can do if we have 18 months' notice. We can do almost nothing on six weeks' notice. We're not built for it. So we've learned an awful lot about how to shift, how to pivot. Forget your 10-year strategic plan. Nobody knows what the next 10 years are going to look like. The analogy I often use... We can't see that further horizon right now. It's like driving your car at nighttime. You can't see beyond your headlights. But you can cross the whole country that way. So I think we've learned enough in these last couple of years that, yes, if things don't pan out exactly as we want or need it to, we have a team and the ability, the learned ability, to be far more nimble, far more agile, far more flexible than we understood ourselves to be uh, even a couple of years ago. A lot of people we've talked to and heard from say we shouldn't go back to 2019 the way it was. Things needed to change, and the pandemic and the racial reckoning in this city and elsewhere has allowed us to do something different. How do you feel about that, and what are you doing different? Well, I came up in a generation where if you could fog a mirror, you get your tail on stage. Like, the show must go on was absolute. And now we have theater workers, actors, stage managers, stage crew on any given show who just... You know, they want what any other worker in America wants, which is like, I'm I'm sick. I've got the flu. I've got 102 degree fever. I've got body aches. And I'm not interested in the stories about how like you went out on stage and between scenes went off, off into the wings, vomited into a bucket and came back on. Nobody's interested in those conversations anymore. So what it means for us organizationally, we are required per equity the Actors' Union, to understudy all roles on the thrust stage because the thrust is a Lort A stage. The proscenium, on the other hand, is a Lort B stage, a different designation with a different rule set. In the Lord B space, the proscenium, we don't have to understudy anybody. And because an understudy going on was the rarest of occurrences in the before times, we would often leave the proscenium fairly exposed. No by safety net for those workers. No safety net. So from an organizational perspective... We're looking at how do we understudy not just the thrust, but how do we understudy the proscenium. Stage crew, if 
you don't have people who can move the things in and out, you also can't play the show. So there's a lot of investment in sort of bench strength in order to ensure that the show can go on in the event that an artist, a stage manager, a technician needs to step aside. And a lot of investment in that space. Was there an idea or something that kept coming back to your mind during the pandemic experience that's still with you as we emerge now from it? You know, the, the most horrible days that I have had in this job or any other job was when the difficult decision was taken. This was before we knew there was federal relief. This was before we knew that there was a vaccine. We let some 200 people go from this organization. And uh, my promise to myself then, my promise to the senior team then, my promise to the board then, is when we come back, we're coming back. And we're going to get as many artists and administrators and production folks and staff back to work as we can. Uh, And that was the promise. And so what had been in my mind all the way through the closure was was this matter of how do we come back and look like ourselves? Um, You know, by some estimations, maybe 30% of all theater workers have left the field over the course of pandemic never to return. So the field itself has a, a pipeline to rebuild. And I think for many of us, there's a greater and deeper appreciation for the blessing of being able to do what it is we do for a living. Guthrie Theater Artistic Director Joseph Hodge talking about the future of performing arts on stage. I'm going to close out the show now with the Future of Us conversation with Tanya Allen. She's president of the McKnight Foundation. And she told us how the all-hands-on-deck mentality of the past three years has reshaped philanthropy. With the pandemic, what we learned was that if we know there's a need, answer it. Don't wait for people to have to ask you for certain things. And one of the things that we just recently did was that we gave a set of economic relief grants to organizations. So instead of waiting for the economy to contract, we just gave them grants without even them knowing it was coming. So freeing ourselves up to show up radically for people who need it the most is what I think the pandemic taught us. And I hope we can hold on to that value. Another new practice born out of the pandemic, asking grantees for less paperwork. We had so many hoops, so much bureaucracy that we would put in front of our partners in order for them to get the resources that they needed. And it was really driven by a lack of trust. And I would argue today that if we give resources to people that we don't trust, then that's poor stewardship. The burden is on us, not on them. Following the murder of George Floyd, Did something happen where you started to see a a roadmap for where philanthropy could go? I think his death has been an inspiration for all of us to think about what can we do more of? What can we do better? But I think the challenge is that all of us have been attempting to do that, but only in incremental ways. And I think that if we're really going to change his death from being a tragedy to a transformation for our region, it means that we're going to have to work together collaboratively. I think that this is an opportunity for us to really rethink the way we show up. Um, I've heard like Minnesota, the state of 10,000 lakes, and then you hear like in 20,000 nonprofits. 
I don't want to suggest in any way that 20,000 nonprofits aren't doing good work. What I'm trying to suggest is that at some point or another, we're going to have to curate our interests. There's no community that's ever made it through tough times without creating some focus and intentionality about where you're going to invest. What comes first? Give us an example. What does that change, that transformation look like? One of the things that we started to do with lots of our partners post the uprisings, we asked this question, which was, is there a way for us to pull our capital, to aggregate it, to syndicate it, to make sure that it's actually deployed in a way that's more racially equitable and that also has some climate resiliency involved and engaged in the rebuilding of the Twin Cities? And that effort is called Groundbreak. How is that different than what's happened before? Usually when you hear efforts of like a groundbreak, it's really about how organizations might put together a fund. You sit that fund over to the side and that fund will make these special investments. We're not actually establishing a fund. What we're trying to do is say that each of these organizations have to undergo fundamental change. And that means that we are thinking about how capital flows regularly, often, and without barriers. And that is very different than, I'll give you some money, I'll turn my head, I don't have to think about this anymore. This is really about rethinking the way you show up with your practices. And then the last piece is that this isn't incremental. So we're not thinking about how do we do a lot of small things. What we're thinking about is how do we scale the solution to the size of the problem? It's not to suggest that small things don't matter. I think you can do great things with small things. But I think that sometimes we have to set aside our own priorities to actually move forward a collective set of priorities. McKnight Foundation President Tanya Allen talking about philanthropy for our series, The Future of Us, How a Pandemic, a Murder, and a City on Fire have changed us and our path forward. You can find all of our interviews. There are some really good ones. You've heard um, a bunch of it this morning at mprnews.org slash future of us. They air Mondays here on All Things Considered. That's where you usually find me in for Angela Davis. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.